is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio on this wonderful Tuesday with me, your host, Paige Nick. We've got an incredible show lined up for you this month, sponsored by Exclusive Books. I can't wait to share this great big pile of books with you, especially because it's winter, which means it's the perfect time to curl up, get cozy, and read while the rain comes down outside. Coming up on today's show, we've got a delightful selection of fiction and non-fiction to share with you. In fact, we're starting out with a very special book. One of our own book choice reviewers, Beverly Rose Muller, has just brought out her latest book. This is her second published book. So while she's usually the one reviewing other authors' books, today Vanessa Levenstein is going to join us to review her book, so she gets to be on the other side of the microphone for a change. Beverly's book is called Bullet in the Heart, and it's about four brothers riding into war. Bev, you do so much for our show, reviewing other people's books every month. We couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Vanessa onto our show to review your book a little bit later. After that review, Shirley Guella is up on the microphone, and she's going to be reviewing a debut novel by South African author Megan Charitz called Lost Prophecy. This book is so hot right now. After that, we move into some young adult fiction. Rachel van der Feyfer, who's in grade 9 at Rustenburg High School, joins us to review two novels she's been reading lately. So if there are any young adults listening, or people who have young adults who love to read in their lives, you'll want to take note of the titles Rachel's going to be telling us about. After that, we move on to a new nature book with John Hanks. I don't read nature books myself, but I have to tell you that every month, John's segment on the nature books he's been reading are some of my favorite segments of this show. For July, he'll be chatting about Plants of the Bavians Kloof by Douglas Houston Brown and Machrit Kruger. I find something really soothing about hearing about nature books. And then we get a two-for-one from Melvin Minow, who read and will review two books. The first is called Fire Island. It's by Jack Parlett. And second is The New Life by Tom Crew. These are both international recent releases. We'll then wind up the show with two great interviews. The first is with Philip Todras, who will be joined in the studio by Catherine Graham to discuss a book called From Ugly to Beautiful. This is the story of Irma Stern. I'm fascinated by the idea of this book because it's a book for young children about the life of the legend Irma Stern. And our final interview is another goodie. This is going to be a very deep, insightful dive into Harry Oppenheimer, Diamonds, Gold and Dynasty. It's a book by Michael Cardo, and the interview is going to be managed very skillfully by our own Twanji Kalula. And then I think I'll wrap up the show by telling you what I've been reading before we go. So how about some music and then we can get on with the show. But first, a little something about the music in today's show, which has been, as always, carefully and cleverly curated by Rick Everett and Dave Wood. And they're all about the stormy, rainy, wintry, perfect reading weather we've been having this month. So in line with that, this first track is Stormy Weather, sung by Billie Holiday. Take it away, Mzu. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather Since my man and I together 
keeps raining all the time Life is bare Gloom and misery everywhere Stormy weather Just can't get my poor self together Our very first book review on today's book choice for July, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And this is a very special one, as I mentioned, because if you regularly listen to this show, you'll recognize the name Beverly Ruiz Miller as one of our wonderful reviewers. Every month, Bev joins us to fill us in on your next possible great read. But this month, we've got something different. We're turning the tables on her, and now we have Vanessa Levenstein joining us to review a book that Beverly Ruiz Miller has written and has just released, published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. It's a beautifully told account of the fellowship of four brothers in war, their capture, and their eventual recovery. Over to you, Vanessa Levenstein, and congrats on another fantastic release to you, Beverly Ruiz Miller. It's so exciting when a colleague has a new baby, as is the case of our book choice sound engineer, Mzum Keta. In fact, it feels as if we've been part of the gestational period. But when a colleague, a book choice reviewer, publishes a book, it's a bit more complicated. What if a new baby doesn't elicit coups? Bullet in the Heart 
Four Brothers Write to War, 1899-1902 by Beverly Ruiz Muller is, fortunately, an exceptional read, and at FMR we are thrilled to coup and celebrate its success. The book is deeply personal and an illuminating account of the Anglo-Boer War. Four brothers went to war and three kept a diary. One of the brothers, Michael, is the grandfather of Beverly's late husband, Ampi Muller, who FMR listeners may well remember as our former book yeser editor. I don't think I'd ever read a book on the Anglo-Boer War before. In fact, when I think of the war, what comes to mind is the women and children in concentration camps and Emily Hophouse, but I'd never given much thought to the men. The Boers, husbands, fathers and sons, who rode to war on their own horses, not even in army uniforms. Not unlike the soldiers in World War I, they were totally unprepared for what was to follow, battlefields bleeding into graveyards. And for those captured, they may well have wished that death had saved them from the prisoner of war camps, which were overcrowded and so the prisoners were shipped off. Michael to Bermuda, while Chris and Peter were exiled to Ceylon. Lou was held in the Greenpoint camp in Cape Town. Beverly deftly weaves in the diaries and her own observations, always mindful of the broader political context, both past and present. Nothing, including warfare, had prepared Michael for the frightening trip to Bermuda. Perhaps, because it was so unspeakable, he could not bring himself to write it down. The way people respond to trauma is telling. We know it took decades for Holocaust survivors to speak of that which is unspeakable. And yet victims of trauma need their pain to be witnessed, hence the diaries. Beverly shares not just the horrors of war, but also the humanity. Referring to the Boer woman, the war had become domestic. They carefully buried the enemy's dead sons and wrote to their mothers, sometimes continuing the correspondence for years. In telling the story, Beverly gives voice not only to the four brothers, but also to the proverbial unknown soldier. And in some ways... This is a letter of love, as the author honours the family of her late husband. So many layers and many stories weave through this narrative. As I mentioned, Bullet in the Heart has become the hot topic around the FMR water cooler. Here's what FMR station manager Ion DeForce said. Bullet in the Heart could be regarded as an historical account of the Boer War. The research is extensive. The facts are irrefutable, but it is the personal accounts by the four very different brothers which makes this book such an extraordinary read. War is inevitably futile, especially when the false narratives of politicians and governments mislead one about the greed at the source of wars. Our collective recent observation of the current war in Ukraine bear this out. What Beverly has managed here is a masterful account of the personal experience of men and women who were dragged from their dignified farming lives into a war they did not want. She paints their experience against the backdrop of the history behind the war, as well as pointing out the devastating after-effects of that long-forgotten war in South Africa, even today. A book I could not put down, a story that touched me, and in a profound way reminded me of my roots. And that's from Ion de Force. And as you can tell, we both had very different experiences of the Anglo-Boer War and both were really drawn to this narrative. Thank you, Vanessa. Next up, we move on to some delicious fiction. Now, I have to tell you, the buzz around this next novel we're reviewing has been astonishing. It's a debut novel by Megan Charitz and it's called Lost Property. Now, when I'm not over here chatting to you all about books, 
I also run a book club on Facebook that has over 20,000 members, and that's called the Good Book Appreciation Society. Just in case you want to join us, just go on Facebook and type the Good Book Appreciation Society into the title bar, and you should find us. Anyway, on the club, every now and then, there's a book that's super hot, that book that everybody is reading and raving about. And right now, this is that book. So I'd like to welcome Shirley Guela to the show to review Megan Charitz's Lost Property in a little more depth. I'd take note of this one if I were you. Every review I've read of this book has been a rave review. Wow, does this book resonate, especially with people of a certain age who lived the life of privileged white South Africans for at least some of those dark years. Megan Charitz, in what is termed her debut novel, has captured a part of social history intimately and creatively, and Lost Property gets to your soul from the first line in part one. The parts themselves, not chapters, begin with such imagination. This is the part where we pretend to be a family. This is the part where you shut up and listen. This is the broken part of the story, or the part about the slice of someone else's life or the final of 54 short parts in which it is something like a family. It's painful, and not only through racial remembrance, but through the pain of a mutilated marriage or two, that of her parents as much as her own, the self-analysis and the very story itself with some points that will make some of you cringe. Jarrett is a gifted storyteller, with a fabulous eye for detail and a prodigious memory, for picking out events and thoughts that stop you putting the book down. You are gripped from the start, the dysfunctional family's birthday party, which really sets the scene for the main act. You want to know why and what, and Charitz tells you as she jumps from past to present, back and forth. You are with Lane in therapy with Graham, not his real name, as she tells us often, every time she goes to try and unravel herself and sort through the detritus of her life. You see that life and those of others through her eyes and observe the neighborhood with its people friendly and cold across the spectrum as only we in the Cape have it and situations. South African life is so well covered in this neighborhood and everything that goes, goes here. Briefly, from gangster violence to gender-based violence, abuse and all of that, but most as a sidebar to the story and not at all the main thrust apart from one real shocker. The novel reads so personally, so intimately, it seems autobiographical, and one senses that at the very least it has to be informed by personal experience of childhood and student days, unless one buys totally into the publisher's blurb that Charis has spent her life involved in making things up. Lost Property is a reflection of so much that is so familiar to so many, I do believe. The childhood in apartheid and nanny-dominated white South Africa when the substitute mother was often more real than the birth mother and the betrayal that came when the substitute mother's real children came to visit. The very close relationships that one day ended and the children didn't know why. The people who perceived the staff to be less than others. You identify and then you draw back because you don't want to identify because the situation is too familiar, too close, too personal, too horrible. You know people like this. Do you want to know them? You know families like this. Are they your neighbors? Are they in your backyard? You can hear the mother-in-law drone, the mother whine, and feel for the kid who never got his birthday cake or the waiter cleaning up the shattered whiskey glass. You despise the mother who takes to her bed for six months. You feel sorry for the softer, kinder, but ultimately overwhelmed father singing Camelot with Lane on their way from Johannesburg to UCT. 
Lane's student days, the illicit Dacha parties, drinking and more, events which form our collective past, they're all there. It's very sad in parts, never depressing, shocking in other parts, especially when the abuse becomes a protector. But that's a tiny yet pertinent part of the bigger picture of self-analysis, understanding and finally hope, and with humor and self-deprecation. At the risk of sounding corny, this novel is so much more than the sum of its parts. I almost read it in one go. to be had out there I wish I Your eyes are like starlight now I'll take your hat Your hair looks swell no, no, Mind if I move in close What's the sense of hurting my pride really oh, Baby, don't hold out Baby, it's cold outside Your lips are delicious. Never such a blizzard before. But baby, you'd freeze out there. Say, lend me a coat. It's up to your knees out there. You've really been great. I thrill when you touch my hair. How can you do this thing to me? Think of my lifelong story. If you got pneumonia and die. Get over that old doubt Baby, it's cold Baby, it's cold outside Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio Sponsored by Exclusive Books With me, your host, Paige Nick That was Baby, It's Cold Outside Sung by Dean Martin I do like a bit of Dean Martin We move on to some young adult fiction now Our favourite YA reviewer, Rachel van der Feyfer Is here to tell us what she's been reading Rachel is in grade 9 at Rustenburg High School, and she still finds time to read voraciously. So she loves to read, and I love to hear about what she's been reading. Bring it on, Rachel. Apparently, when Neva was born, it had come as a nasty shock to Mrs. Thornblossom that she should put any effort at all into the business of being a mother. Leave at Last by Sari Pennypacker tells the story of Leva Space Thornblossom, a genius young girl who lives with the awful, self-obsessed parents. Her celebrity-obsessed mother, the mayor of Nutsmore, thought her baby would bring her fame, and her greedy father, the treasurer of Nutsmore, thought her baby would make him wealthy. When, unsurprisingly, the baby didn't need a such thing, poor Lieber was locked into the house and forced to be their personal slave. When she finally decided to sneak out one day, she discovers the wonderful library next door. 
There, she meets kind-hearted librarian Pauline Flowers and her nephew aspiring actor Harry. This leads to a setting out an adventure that will change her life forever. Leave at Last takes a lot of inspiration from Roald Dahl's Matilda, although it's still a unique story, and as a big fan of Roald Dahl books, and especially Matilda, I really love reading this. The second book I'll be reading today is Jamie. When Jamie enters year six, they realize they have to choose what high school they go to next year. There's just one problem. There's a high school for boys and the high school for girls, but there's no school for them. The book follows Jamie as they protest to get included and recognized by the people around them and find their place. I really enjoyed the story, but it's also a really fun way to learn about gender identities and to teach kids about trans and non-binary people. After each chapter, there was a helpful page which explained different terms, such as cis and trans, and different identities, which I thought was really cool. All in all, I really loved the book and would fully recommend people to read it. I knew you were going to have some great suggestions for us, Rachel. Thanks so much. You're all tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, sponsored by Exclusive Books. This is one of the few radio shows you can tune into in South Africa for a jam-packed hour full of book reviews and interviews. So stay right where you are. We've got lots more coming. To take us into the second half of the show, we're going to be joined by John Hanks, who always has one of my favorite segments of the show when he joins us to chat about the latest nature book he's read. Today, it's a book called Plants of the Bavians Kloof, and it's by Douglas Houston Brown and Mahrit Kruger. Thanks for joining us, John. I have no hesitation in saying that the Bavianskloof, which is a narrow valley extending for some 200 kilometers in the southwestern corner of the Eastern Cape, must be one of South Africa's premier destinations for those who want to spend time in a superb natural area. If you want to know why I say that and want to see the area for yourself, you must get your own copy of Plants of the Bavianskloof by Douglas Houston Brown and Margaret Kruger, two people who have what I believe is unrivaled first-hand knowledge of the plants of the area and what is needed for their conservation. This field guide of 518 pages is in a class of its own, describing with succinct text and excellent photographs over 1,100 plants that occur in the Bavianskloof, an area named after the largest and healthiest baboon troop found anywhere in Africa. For each species, plant parts are described with approximate measurements to facilitate identification. And for those who might be intimidated by the terminology used in these descriptions, there is an eight-page illustrated glossary of them all, one of the best of its kind I have seen. The book also has most useful and well-illustrated accounts of the geological history of the area, and a summary of the vegetation types that occur there, with almost all of South Africa's eight biomes being represented, an exceptional diversity of species, including 90 that are endemics. The authors have called attention on how to use this publication, and in the preface, they have the following words, which I really like, and I quote, We hope that this book does not spend long days on your bookshelf. Instead, we hope that it becomes worn out from use, dog-eared and ingrained with good old-fashioned dirt as you explore the natural wonders of the Bavianskloof. End quote. This, of course, is how all good field guides should be used. The title, again, of a book compiled over 20 years is Plants of the Bavianskloof 
It's written by Douglas Houston Brown and Margaret Kruger and is published in 2023 by Straight Nature. It is very good value at 450 rand. Please get your own copy and use it and you will understand why I'm so enthusiastic about this excellent field guide. Melvin Minard joins us now with a two-for-one special. He'll be telling us about two great pieces of fiction that sound like perfect wintry reading. The first is Fire Island by Jack Parlett, and the second one is The New Life by Tom Crew. Welcome to the show, Melvin. Narratives about sexuality outside of, uh, let's say, the heteronormative view are increasingly finding a solid foothold in contemporary literature. In other words, good queer reading. Two wonderfully readable books that certainly step neatly and stylishly into that space is Jack Parlett's Fire Island, subtitled Love, Lost and Liberation in an American Paradise, and Tom Cruise's equally teasing title The New Life. The latter is an inventive novel set in Victorian England with characters based on historical figures. Fire Island is, as the title indicates, a queer history of a remarkable piece of land off New York coast. Parlett is a literary critic and his story of the famous gay island is centered around the many writers, poets and artists who have found an escape here from the confines in, challenges by and often repression in the straight world. His delightfully informative book is framed by self-reflection and discovery so that his sometimes gossipy telling about the colorful arty characters is bathed in his personal experience of Fire Island sometimes over-the-top sexual adventures. A Brit who visited the island in 2017 for the first time while researching American poetry and gay cruising for a doctorate, Pollitt's focus is on the poet Frank O'Hara and the literary heritage of the island by writers such as Walt Whitman, W.H. Auden, Tennessee Williams, Carson McCullers, Patricia Highsmith and James Baldwin. They come to life in a space that is both an escape and Eden, but also historically and socially contested. At the same time, Parlett's view is personal and hence moving. I quote, Fire Island feels like a case study of utopian imperfections, of the way norms became entrenched and inequalities perpetuated in a place defined by the fact that it is not simply for everyone. In victorious England, such a space would indeed have been out of public view and not communal. Oscar Wilde's controversial trial took place in 1895, but already men of learning were investigating alternatives and additions to the traditional sexual bond of male and female husband and wife. Two such researchers, Havelock Ellis and John Addington Simmons, published a book titled Sexual Inversions. Tom Crew, a distinguished historian, fictionalizes these personalities in a brilliant first novel that brings the era vividly to life in a contemporary cinematic manner. He explores the issues that faced men of alternative desire, sexual inversions they called it, we speak of homosexuality, trapped in the public customs of their age. He also puts into play the contradictions of entrenched norms and perpetuated inequalities in a highly divided society of classes. Both his characters, John Addington and Henry Ellis, are independent married men to whom the allure of the other sexual attraction becomes critical issues. These they navigate in their private lives, pushing the boundaries in relationships. The central trust 
is formulated by Henry, and I quote, he has seen that the sex instinct might be a great engine for happiness if it could only be liberated from shame, end quote. John and Henry decide to collaborate on a book to do exactly that, to write boldly about those inversions, as they call them, and one would find his research among ancient Greek boy love. The other is medical experience. And the set piece is a Chekhovian drama of desire, enlightened thought, and Victorian social dynamic. The book's enjoyment lies in the gentle poetic tone in which the characters come to life, the way conversations and manners echo the time. Knowing that the main personality somehow did feature in queer history adds frisson to the liberated sex descriptions and a slight touch of humor. The New Life and Fire Island are, as I said, excellent queer reading. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. So dark up above The sun's in my heart And I'm ready for love Let the stormy clouds chase Everyone from the place Come on with the rain I've a smile on my face I'll walk With a happy refrain And I'm singing, just singing in the rain Stormy clouds chase Everyone from the place Come on with that rain I've a smile on my face I'll walk down the lane With a happy refrain And I'm singing Just singing in It's July in South Africa, and so, of course, if you're in Cape Town, you're doing an awful lot of singing in the rain right now. So that's why that was Singing in the Rain, sung by Doris Day, right here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. I'm sure you've gathered by now, but all the tracks on today's show are about the rain. And our thanks go to Dave Wood and Rick Everett again for their magic song selection every show.
If you missed any of the books or authors we've mentioned on today's show and you'd like a memory refresher, you can download a podcast of the show on fmr.co.za or on our FMR app, which you've hopefully already downloaded from the App Store. And now it's interview time. Our first one is with Philip Todras, who's joined by Catherine Graham. She's the author of a children's book called From Ugly to Beautiful. This is the story of Irma Stern, and it's filled with illustrations by Nicholas Smith. This book is hot off the press. It was just launched at the Irma Stern Museum on the 24th of June. I'm told it's aimed at children between three and nine years old, and how incredible that at that age children can be exposed to this legend of the art world in South Africa. Hello, Philip and Catherine Graham. I think our listeners are keen to hear more about this book. I know I am. I'm talking to Catherine Graham, who is the author of From Ugly to Beautiful, The Story of Irma Stern. Now, I know there are lots of works on Irma Stern, but this one is directed particularly to children between the ages of three and nine years old. And my first question to you, Catherine, is how did you conceive of this? How did you decide that this is a group that you could tell a story to and the purpose of that story? Where would you like to begin? <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I'd already written a book uh, on Irma Stern, a biography, but this one was directed, as you say, at much younger children. Um, and there is a growing genre worldwide for picture books for children that are based, they're basically biographies, so picture book biographies. Um, but it hasn't really caught on in South Africa. And I thought, you know, as a mum of three kids, there's no better way to inspire children than with real life stories. You know, the movies we watch and the books we read, it's so much more powerful when you know it's a real person who's been through that and has conquered whatever they were facing. So I... As I did my research the first time around with A Passionate Vision, which is the first book I wrote, um, it was all about perseverance and believing in yourself, which that's what really struck me about Irma. For the first 10 years, she hardly sold any artwork. She's supported by Jewish friends who believed in her. Her parents even, I mean, her dad at one stage took one of his sculptures and threw it off the balcony. <laughs> so she faced um, external and internal you know, resistance. Her first exhibition was a complete flop. Everyone said it were, her artwork was ugly. It's just because they didn't understand expressionism, which is her style. Um, and it took 10 years for her to establish herself. And then in 1932, when she had her exhibition, suddenly she was not an ugly duckling anymore. She was a beautiful swan. So it was just to show children not to give up on their dreams, to persevere, almost to say to them, if you have a dream, you will face resistance, but don't let that throw you. Carry on. Put in your 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell says, and you'll get there. Well, it's an encouraging message, but now how did you personally get that across? Because you're the author mm. with a particular story, mm. and you have uh, Nicholas Smith as your illustrator. Yes, that's right. So, and how did that work together in terms of putting this all together yes. for that particular yes. group? Well, at first I wanted to just focus on those 10 years, from 1922 to 1932, when she first arrived in Cape Town to her first successful exhibition. Um, but then the feedback I got from people was it was confusing. So I thought, okay, start at the beginning. Start when she's, uh, you know, a little girl growing up in this tiny little dorpy called Schweizerenica. No one knows where that is. And, and then how did she become this famous artist? And so I follow the trajectory of her life sort of from cradle to grave um, and focus on the one thing that I feel is important because you don't have a lot of words. I think the whole book is like 
I think it's 800 words long. So you don't really have enough time to explore every part of her life. So it was just a perseverance. It was, yes, you must have talent and you must work hard and you must persevere. To and how is that reflected in the illustrations as well and the technique in terms of the, it can't be a turned kind of drawings and yet yes, there's got to be a marriage of some exactly, kind. Exactly, exactly. Nicholas done a fantastic job couldn't have asked for a better illustrator. She's really used her own style as an illustrator, but incorporated Irma's art. And what I really liked about her artwork is that it's so bold and bright and makes use of complementary colors, which Irma was so good at. Um, so there are quite a few um, double spreads where she has taken Irma's art exactly as it is and incorporated with her illustrations. Um, she had to persevere coming to your question because she could never get Irma's hair right. Um, she got her figure right. She was quite a large lady. Um, she got the figure right, but the hair was always a bit of a problem. So that's where she had to persevere. <laughs> <laughs> and as you say, um, what sort of research did you have to do to get all these information? Because I know you started, you say, Schweizerinica, but yes. also how her parents encouraged her to yes. think just bigger than where she was. Yes, if yes. Like to comment on yes. that. Yes, so I start the book off with her mum because she loved to go horse riding with her mum in Schweizerinica. And she says, Irma Kent, because that's what she called her, Irma Kent, where shall we go today? Paris, London, Berlin, or where? And they're in the middle of nowhere. I just loved how the mum was like, you can go anywhere in life. You can do anything. You know, it was... She was lifting her sights to the global stage, and I think that's what, why we're all so proud of Irma Stern as a South African artist, is because she has achieved so much. Her paintings sell for millions, and they recognize the world over. Well, I think it's a marvelous story to tell to a young person that you can achieve your dream. And if you want to find out more, you can go along to the Irma Stern Museum, which is setting the book, and I'm sure there'll be other places as well. And the book is called From Ugly to Beautiful, The Story of Irma Stern. It's written by Catherine Graham. Illustrations are by Nicholas Smith. It's printed by, published by Woodcount. And I'm really wanting to see what the response is of my Aww. great niece who's only five years old. Oh, so get along and see how a book can inspire and make a change to a young person's life. Just walking in the rain Soaking wet Torture in my heart By trying to forget Just walking in the rain So alone and blue All because my heart Just walking in the rain 
Walking in the Rain was sung by Johnny Ray here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books with me, your host, Paige Nick. A ray of sunshine through the rain, maybe? And for our last interview of this week's show, we've got a big one. Twanji Kalula brings us an in-depth conversation with Michael Cardo about a book about Harry Oppenheimer called Diamonds, Gold and Dynasty. As you may be able to hear, I didn't escape flu season this year, but on the upside, it gave me some time to stay in bed and read Michael Cardo's latest book, Harry Oppenheimer, Diamonds, Gold and Dynasty. I don't need to tell you that the Oppenheimers have had a complex and complicated political and economic influence in Southern Africa and around the world for over a century, so a book of this nature was long overdue. In addition to being a writer and a historian, uh, Michael Cardo is a member of Parliament for the Opposition and he joins me today. Firstly, Michael, where did you find the time? This book is massive and it must have been a massive undertaking and you have a full-time job. I do indeed. Twenty, thanks so much for having me on your show. Yes, it was difficult. I had to carve our time to work on this book because it was a big enterprise made more complicated by the fact that there was no pre-existing biography of Harry Oppenheimer. There was a dual biography written of Harry Oppenheimer and his father, Sir Ernest, which was published in 1973. So obviously that book didn't do justice to the full duration of Harry Oppenheimer's career and also it was predominantly based on secondary sources. So with this particular book I was in the fortunate position of being given unfettered access to all the material that's kept in the Brenthurst Library which is the library on the Oppenheimer's estate in Johannesburg and it houses all the family's papers. So I had to work through all of Harry Oppenheimer's papers as well as the papers of other family members and that was very very research intensive. So it took me a lot of time to master that material, and that's before I moved on to the writing, which, as you know, is always never a linear process. It's always fraught. It's always complex. It always takes place in fits and starts. Uh, but at the end of the day, it took me six years, and I'm glad I took that length of time with the book because it enabled me, I think, to try and produce a vivid portrait, which I don't think I would have been able to do justice to had I only had a shorter period of time in which to work on the book. I definitely think all those hours hold up in the library kind of shine through on the pages. What was it exactly that drew you to Harry Oppenheimer? Why is he important for South Africans to know about? Well, he's such a towering figure in the 20th century history of South Africa. He was born 
two years before the Act of Union in 1910, which was really the first birth of the South African nation, obviously the birth of the, the white nation, a nation that was founded on segregation and the exclusion of black people from citizenship. So two years before the Act of Union, he was born and he died in 2000. He lived a long life. He died at the age of 91 and he was able to witness the ushering in of the non-racial democracy that South Africa became in 1994. So he, he lived long enough to see the rebirth of the nation. And along with that, he was so intimately involved in so many aspects of South African history. He was a towering figure, not only in the corporate sphere, financially and economically, but he also played a formidable political role. He was a member of parliament for 10 years in the 1950s. He was elected in the, the watershed election of 1948, which was when the National Party came to power on the platform of apartheid. And he served in parliament for a shade under 10 years, but he continued to take a great interest in politics. He was very much involved with the foundation of the Progressive Party in 1959. He was the main financial support of that party. He was a great friend of the likes of Helen Sussman and Colin Eglin and Zach de Beer. And he played an extremely important role in keeping liberal ideas alive in South Africa, both through politics, through the opposition, but also through his role as a press baron and as a philanthropist too. And in recent years, I guess the Oppenheimer name has become quite complicated in South Africa and different groups of South Africans have very different opinions um, on what they, the name has come to mean for them. Were you worried about that as you were writing it? Were you worried about how the book might land? I was certainly very mindful of it. When I started working on this book in 2017, it was just as Bell Pottinger was unraveling and there was a whole campaign against white monopoly capital and the, the Ruperts and the Oppenheimers were very much front and center of that campaign. So I always was aware of the fact that Oppenheimer is a complex figure with a complicated legacy in South Africa. He's by no means viewed with universal adoration. And I always knew that there were going to be very strong reactions to him as a subject. But my role as a historian really is to grapple with the shades of gray and to tease out those complexities and not approach my subject either as one who seeks to denounce him for various misdeeds, nor to valorize him or to produce a hagiography. So I really wanted to get to grips with Harry Oppenheimer, the man, and also to understand the reactions to him, not only after his death, in other words, not just at the time of the Bell Pottinger campaign against white monopoly capital, but also in an earlier era where he came under fire from the Afrikaner nationalist ruling class. He was deeply unpopular in the 1950s, for example, when the, the National Party in Parliament weaponized the Hoggenheimer slur against him. Now, Hoggenheimer is an anti-Semitic trope. It embodies predatory uh, mining finance capital, uh, British Jewish mining finance capital, and Oppenheimer was really demonized in the 1950s. So there were curious and interesting echoes for me between the 1950s and the much later period. But I hope in this biography to have cut through some of that demonization and to present him as a, a complex, uh, rounded human being. 
I think one of the things you do so skillfully in this book, and I think it's because you spent a lot of time drawing from his letters and his personal writings, is you managed to give us a sense of his personality. What was the most surprising thing you discovered about him as you were kind of researching and working on this book? So the thing about Harry Oppenheimer, you know, is that he was the kind of totemic figure in the white business establishment for such a long period of time. He was also a deeply reserved man. He was extremely private. I'm not sure that he had a great many intimate friendships. In other words, not much was known about him. So what really was interesting for me is was to learn about the interior Harry Oppenheimer. And as you point out in your question, I was able to do that through gaining access to his letters and his diaries where he, you know, put on paper his intimate thoughts. I suppose what particularly was interesting for me was his abiding uh, passion for English romantic poetry. He was a great collector of first editions of Byron and Shelley and Keats. He was also a man possessed of a fairly dry sense of humor. I think he was a fairly good judge of character, so he summed up people quite well. And he obviously put things down in his letters and his diaries, which he wouldn't have said in public. So it was interesting gaining access to his quite intimate, private thoughts about people. And he was quite opinionated. That comes through quite thoroughly throughout the book. What do you think he might make of South Africa as it is today? That's a good question. Look, the fact about Harry Oppenheimer is that he was a liberal, as I point out in the book, of a fairly conservative sort. He, he certainly wasn't a crusading social democrat by any stretch of the imagination. And even in his times, his liberalism perhaps wasn't as progressive as, for example, the liberalism of the Liberal Party, which had been founded in 1953. He always liked to say he had the standard line, which he trotted out with journalists and interviewers. You know, he used to say, in the South African context, I might seem to be a, a liberal, but really at heart, I'm just an old-fashioned conservative. And that was a, a deeply true reflection that he himself made. What would he have made of politics today? I think he would have been disappointed. You know, he cultivated a friendship with Nelson Mandela in the 1990s, and I think he was genuinely enthused and excited about the prospects of non-racial democracy in South Africa. But I don't think things have turned out in a way that would have pleased him. Great. And we obviously study history for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons is to learn something from it and hopefully influence, uh, you know, how we move forward. What were you hoping South Africans would take away from this book? Well, I hope that South Africans don't pick up this book and think, well, you know, Harry Oppenheimer really presided over a, a mining empire for a very long period of time that was oppressive and exploitative and that's the sum of him. You know, what I try and say in the book is that can't be dismissed outright. The fact of the matter was that Anglo-American and De Beers, which were the two corporations which he presided over, the, the family dynasty, which is in the title, those two corporate organizations did profit from the migrant labor system, from past laws, and from often deeply squalid living conditions on the mines. But Harry Oppenheimer, more so than many other 
mining titans involved with other mining houses did actually make an attempt to bring about reform and he was deeply involved in the process of recognizing black trade unions in the 1970s in increasing the wages of black mine workers from the mid-1970s onwards and really pressing in his own, albeit conservative way, for change to come about in South Africa. And I hope that readers of the book will be able to acknowledge that we have complex figures who aren't straightforward, who have complex, complicated legacies, and this book is an attempt to grapple with that. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, The research is meticulous, the story is comprehensive, and for me the book wasn't just about the influence and legacy of Harry Oppenheim, it was also about the industrialization of South Africa during that period. And if you're looking for a well-written cerebral read, I can strongly recommend this one. Harry Oppenheimer by Michael Carter was published by Jonathan Ball and retails for 360 Rand. I just knew that one was going to be fascinating. Thank you, Twanji. You have a great way of asking all the right questions. I'm a big fan of a Twanji interview. All right, so before we head off, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading. June was a strange month for me with some massive work deadlines and my own book projects I've been busy with. And I sometimes find when I'm writing that I struggle to focus on a book. So when that happens, I turn to Audible. And Audible is an app that you can download online and you can subscribe and download audiobooks. And then I can listen to a book while I'm running or walking or driving, and that just gives me so much joy. I love this app. So I want to tell you about a book I just listened to in June. It's not a new book by any means. In fact, it came out in 1948. It's been around. A friend of mine told me I had to listen to it. So I went looking, and I was pleased to discover it was a free download on Audible because I'm a subscriber. It's part of their free content offering that only goes out to um, subscribers. The book is called I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, and it's a classic. So you may well have heard of it. I had not. I'm embarrassed to admit. But what an utterly delightful, charming, vintage, old-fashioned surprise of a book. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. My wonderful bookie friend Megan, who recommended it to me, has really excellent taste. I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith is this gem. Dodie Smith was an English novelist and playwright, and she's best known for writing 101 Dalmatians, which she wrote back in 1956. She wrote nine novels and plenty more plays and memoirs, and there have been many film adaptations of her work. I find her quite fascinating. And I spent a long time Googling pictures of her and her Dalmatians and reading up about her life. I really went down such a rabbit hole and I I loved seeing her and discovering her. I Capture the Castle is about a dirt poor family trying to survive in a ramshackle castle in England. Well, it's more like an old pile of stones, really. The father is a once famous struggling writer, only because he's struggling to write. Their stepmother is an artist's muse. Cassandra is 17 and she's sister to Rose and Thomas, and she keeps a journal and tells their story throughout the book. It's really the sweetest, gentlest, most Moorish read. I just loved it. And I wanted to share this that I found on Wikipedia when I was going down my rabbit hole about Dodie Smith and about her love of Dalmatians. Dodie Smith and Beasley loved dogs and kept Dalmatians as pets. At one point, the couple had nine of them, Their first Dalmatian was named Pongo, which became the name Smith used for the canine protagonist of the novel, 101 Dalmatians. Smith had the idea for the novel 101 Dalmatians when one of her friends observed a group of her Dalmatians and said, those dogs would make a lovely fur coat. And so that brings us to the end of the show and leaves me with just enough time to thank Mzood for pulling the show together and to thank our reviewers, authors and interviewers 
and of course our publishers who send us lots of lovely books, and our sponsors' exclusive books. If the book you seek does truly exist, you will find it guaranteed at your local exclusive books. We're playing out with I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm, sung by Harry Curtis, and good for him. But I've got my love of books to keep me warm. Until next time, which is Tuesday, two weeks from now, happy reading. The snow is snowing and the wind it is blowing but I can weather the storm Why do I care how much it may storm I've got my love to keep it warm I can't not remember Oh, worse, December, just watch those icicles fall. Why do I care if icicles fall? I've got my love to keep me warm. Oh, with my overcoat, oh, with my gloves. Who needs an overcoat? I'm very loving My heart's on fire And the flame grows higher So I will weather the storm Why do I care how much it may storm? I've got my love to keep you warm Just a little higher So I will weather the storm Why do I care how much it storms? I've got my love to keep me warm I've got my love to keep me warm was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 